Welcome back, everyone. Helene, if you could turn the top two lights up a little bit more, that would be helpful. Maybe a little less than the first. No, the other one. (laughs) The other first. Yeah, great, thanks. So hopefully everybody's now on the Buddhist Studies email list, and people can go directly to the Buddhist Studies webpage which is just buddhaststudies.kamagarmeditation.org. And I put up a couple of readings, and I'd like to put up a couple more. So if anybody is skilled with scanning, there are a couple chapters I'd like to put up. Um, And people, I'm looking for someone who knows how to scan a number of sheets, but make it one document. So if you're that kind of person, you can see me afterward, and I'll give you a book to take back home with you. And sometime this week, you could scan something and uh, send me the document, and then we can get it out there for everyone. So we'll have our small groups in about a half an hour, and uh, I'll say a little bit more about small groups when we get there. So tonight I want to talk about mundane right view. I suggested to folks to take a look at, if not read in an in-depth way, Bhikkhu Bodhi's chapter on right view, where he talks both about mundane right view and super mundane right view. And this is uh, maybe sometimes puzzling, but just the way it is, fact in our existence that we can and we need to understand our experience both from a relative point of view, but also not that we'll thoroughly understand it from a super mundane point of view, but we want to at least appreciate the relativeness of what we start out with as right view. And the Buddha uses the simile or the metaphor of a raft. These constructions about me trying to be a good human being, me trying to develop calm in my mind, very useful construction, but it's still a construction. So I want to talk about what is called a mundane right view today. I'll start by reading something from that chapter that I sent uh, to the email list last week. So hopefully everybody who wanted to take a look at it had a chance. And here the Bhikkhu Bodhi, this Western Buddhist monk, um, is really talking about how, by definition, when we talk about view, the view that we have, we're talking about that, those beliefs, that way the sort of patterns or the formulas we use to construct meaning in our lives. So all of us are living with constructed meaning right now, and that the particular kind of meaning that we're giving to our experience is what we call coming out of our view or coming out of our beliefs that we have. So the important thing to understand is no matter who we are, there are there is a view or views, and some of these views are relatively wholesome in the sense that they're not setting emotion, stress, and suffering. And a lot of the views that we live out of are what we call unwholesome or unskillful in the sense that they come, they lead to, they come with and lead to tension. Not just for ourselves, but those around us too. So when I'm operating or living out of 
beliefs that are don't really fit, aren't right in the sense of being in alignment with the way things are, then what flows out of that, what I think, what I say, what I do in the world, is um, off and causes suffering or stress for myself and obviously for those around me because my behaviors, my way of being in the world is based on ideas that don't really fit with the way things are. So here Bhikkhu Bodhi says, the importance of right view can be gauged from the fact that our perspectives on crucial issues of reality and value have a bearing that goes beyond mere theoretical convictions. They govern our attitudes, our actions, our whole orientation to existence. Our views might not be clearly formulated in our mind. We might have only a hazy conceptual grasp of our beliefs. But whether formulated or not, expressed or maintained in silence, these views have a far-reaching influence. They structure our perceptions, order our values, crystallize into the ideational framework through which we interpret to ourselves the meaning of our being in the world. One of our early teachers here in the Twin Cities back in the late 80s and early 90s um, was a person called Chin Zin Yang. He still teaches. Uh, now he lives in Vermont. Some of you know Gail Iverson, one of the longtime teachers here at the center, one of our staff members. She lived and worked with Shenzhen in L.A. for a long time, seven years or so, um, as the head of, sort of administrative head of his organization, the Vipassana Support Network, it was called. Um, and one of the things Shenzhen would say is, subtle is significant. And this really is true the view we have is subtle, so subtle that most of the time we don't think we have a view that we're operating with. It's pervasive, but it it's so important. It's significant, the view. So one of the reasons I thought it would be nice to emphasize meditation practice that supports calm is that calm makes the mind more sensitive sort of one of the fruits of having calm or steadiness is that what is subtle becomes more apparent when the mind is calm. Because any activity of mind against some degree of stillness or peace or settledness stands out more. But when my mind is racing and all over the place, the activity of mind, that relatively subtle activity of our beliefs and values and ideas, views, it doesn't stand out. You can't see it. So remember last week, and this may be one of the things you want to bring up in the small groups, um, I mentioned uh, thinking on this mundane, on this basic level, think of the Eightfold Path or the spiritual path as uh, different types of purifications. So there are as the Buddha says, there are these obscurations or these tendencies of mind that obscure an inherent freedom, peace, or wholeness. And so spiritual life, spiritual practices, they're about purifying, 
burning away or removing the obscurations. And the Eightfold Path, or this path that the Buddha taught, the Fourth Noble Truth, which we'll be talking about in the spring, the Four Noble Truth, that's the spring course. But the Fourth Noble Truth is about the path, the Eightfold Path, which we're talking about now. And we purify our actions. So I talked about this last week. Right? By restraining from doing things we've learned don't help, like hitting. It doesn't help. So we've learned, most of us, most of the time, we've learned to restrain from hitting. Or maybe, not as well, but on our way to refraining from insulting other people. And then, if we really get good, insulting other people when they're not there. Right? So... And we learn to refrain, we purify, like we still have the inclination to want to gossip, to want to put somebody down because we're in the safety of our home and no one will know. And he's a politician anyway. So we, but we've learned by paying attention that it feels yucky to do that. So then we we refrain and we're burning out the idea that just because I have the inclination to say something bad about somebody doesn't mean I have to. That I can actually, there's this other possibility to refrain. So that's one kind of purification. Then we also purify our mind. This is the samadhi work of the Eightfold Path. Where we're burning out the more subtle tendencies. Again, we're going from gross to subtle. So the work of samadhi is another kind of burning, another purification. We're burning out the tendency to obsess in particular ways that cause the mind to get really agitated or disturbed or unsettled because we don't value being the mind being disturbed, agitated, and unsettled. So we refrain. But instead of refraining from acting, now we're refraining in this more subtle way, like not going there, dropping it when we find ourselves there because we've learned. So this is the mundane level of practice. Then in terms of right view, the mundane way of of like purifying our view, just on the most basic level, this is more subtle, is we're training the mind to see things as being lawful. Things unfold lawfully, not randomly. And the linchpin is volition or the intention or motivations that we see in the mind. They matter. So we're training the mind to have that view. And so that means we're we're refraining from the view that nothing matters. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that this isn't mine, I'm going to take it. Or it doesn't matter if I think these thoughts, nobody knows. But the thing is, everything matters. That's a view we can, like right now, you don't have to believe that view, but you can practice to see, like you can use that view and see if it's skillful. Like what does it do for your life to have the attitude that intentions matter, volitions matter, motivations matter. Well, one thing, like if we start pretending that that's true, well, then we're going to want to notice intentions, notice the motivations, notice the volitions. 
So on this mundane level, right view is sometimes called ownership of actions. And many of you have heard we chant this at the center um, on Sunday mornings. Some of you know it from the five remembrances. Beings are owners of their actions, heirs of their actions. They spring from their actions, are bound to their actions. Here, actions could be translated as karma, or you could use the Pali word karma or kama. Are bound to their actions, are supported by their actions. Whatever deeds they do, good or bad, of those they shall be heirs. So this volition, like the motivation, intentions behind our actions, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, they make an imprint in the mind stream. Doesn't matter if anybody catches us with that thought or that saying that thing or doing that thing. It doesn't matter because the karmic effect is immediately in the mind, in the mind stream. So when um, I act out uh, an intention to be generous, I really like this, but I really want to give it away. So I do. Then going forward, whatever that mind stream is, which, you know, is a mystery, but it's something, right? There is a continuity of this mind, whatever that is. And now, whatever that continuity is, it is the result or it is the continuation of the mind that let go and gave that thing away or the mind that thought badly about a person or the mind that all the things we did today. So this mind stream, whatever it is, is exactly the continuation of the mind that did all those things that were done today. All those mental events, all those volitional things. This is the mind you get when you do all those things. So to really see that the mind that's expressing itself right now, the activity of the mind. So sometimes it's a little confusing how we use the word mind, but generally speaking, when, when in doubt, assume that when someone like me uses the word mind, I'm talking about the conditioned mind or the activity of the mind. Sometimes we use the word mind to talk about sort of the nature, the ultimate nature of the mind. So I'll try to be careful, more careful about that. But here I'm talking about the activity of the mind, the conditioned mind that is acting out its momentum, right? The mind is like a force, like all nature. They're just these different forces that are expressing themselves naturally. Well, as hard as it is for us to quantify with our scientific methods, the mind, the conditioned mind is also this force acting out its conditions. And then those conditions then express themselves and those those moments of expression, those activities of mind then condition the mind going forward. So when we refrain the mind in some way or when we understand that con- like a particular disposition has been triggered, that now there's some wisdom and awareness there, which understands that's just a disposition. So there are two things. There's that defensiveness maybe that got triggered, and then there's enough space, enough wisdom that understands that's just that disposition of defensiveness. So then the mind going forward has been conditioned by that understanding, both by the defensiveness arising 
but also the wisdom that understood that's just defensiveness. That's just that emotion, that feeling. It's yucky, but it's just that. So the mind going forward is the mind that understood that, that understood that defensiveness is just defensiveness. And that mind going forward, that mind stream going forward, will always be the continuation of that insight, however little minor that was, or big that insight was. And same thing with moments of ignorance, like taking the bait and that defensiveness gets triggered and we get identified with it and spin with it and the body then begins to express the tension of that defensiveness, which reinforces the idea, the self-centered idea, I'm defensive and I should be defensive because this person's attacking me and it's not fair. And then the mind going forward is being conditioned by that mental activity. So it will always be expressing the results, the karmic fruit of having done that action. So this is why we have the head statement, as heavy as it might sound, beings are owners of their actions, heirs of their actions, they spring from their actions, bound to their actions, are supported and are supported by their actions. Whatever deeds they do, for good or bad, of those they will be the heir. So mundane right view, like this is like in Buddhist cosmological terms, like we uh, stepping out of an animal, the limitations of an animal view, like our close relatives, animals who aren't able to uh, discern, to and I'm not saying this is true of all animals, but generally speaking, you know, more complex animals, like human animals, we have this capacity to be reflective and to understand the lawfulness of how things are unfolding. And so, as a practice this week and weeks ahead, just on this mundane level, we could even use the word lawfulness almost like a mantra to help frame the experience of our mind, the activity of our mind, and the activity of what's going on around us. And just to practice whatever's going on, like sitting at a talk at Common Ground, that it's lawful. And whatever feelings we're having, based on what you're hearing, lawful. And whatever dynamic you're sensing in the room, lawful. Meaning, there are natural causes, conditions, interacting, conditioning what comes next and next and next. It's a lawful unfolding. And then it really begs the question or or sort of inspires the heart, inspires the mind to want to learn how to skillfully participate in this lawful unfolding. Because here's the thing, and somebody, I think it was Dan, sent me an email today about this question of uh, determinism and responsibility. And the way it works in Buddhism, and it's subtle, and uh, so it's okay that it's confusing. It takes some reflection to really understand this. But there is this natural, lawful, conditional unfolding. And part of that unfolding is being driven, so to speak, by past causes. But in every moment, as a living being, there's the way the mind is understanding the conditional unfolding of causes and conditions right now. 
So there's always two things. There's the force from the past that's expressing itself with the arising of experience, mental and physical experience, conditions right now. And what the mind, the knowing mind, what view, let's just put it right on view, what view the knowing mind is understanding what's showing up in this moment. So every moment is really the coming together of those two things. A mind through some view that's knowing the arising conditions. Now, that knowing mind is also an arising condition, but we're just kind of highlighting it, right? It's all arising conditions, but one of those arising conditions is a knowing mind with or without wisdom, or with a lot of wisdom, or a little wisdom, or perfect wisdom. And that dynamic of a knowing mind with some wisdom or very little wisdom, knowing the arising conditions, is what then conditions the next moment. And the image the Buddha used, maybe I've been mentioned this last week, I can't remember, um, this very well-known simile of salt. And like a wrong view, you could think of as a very small container. And if you put a cup of salt in a in a cup of water or a pint of water, it's going to be extremely salty. You're not going to be able to drink it. But if you put a cup of water in a huge tank, like the Lake Superior tank, it's not going to bother the water. The water's going to be perfectly fine. And that's a, a nice simile for view. If we have a very self-centered, very narrow, very fear-based, greed-based view, and something arises, something really pleasant or something really unpleasant arises, well, there's going to be a problem. Because the view is going to take that pleasant or unpleasant thing personally, and there's going to be some unskillful action flowing out of that. But when the view is vast, and an unpleasant or pleasant experience arises for us, then it's still going to touch the heart. The unpleasantness or the pleasantness of that experience is still going to be known, still going to be felt or seen. But now it's being seen with the view that knows it's just this pleasant experience being known. It's just this unpleasant experience being known. That, you know, we use often that uh, image of space as a simile for wisdom, like the vast space of the heart that knows sometimes it's pleasant and sometimes it's unpleasant and sometimes it's neutral. And it will be here for a while and then it will be another way. So I don't need to, I don't need to believe whatever greed is triggered by the pleasantness or aversion that's triggered by the unpleasantness. I don't need to believe it has to be acted out or taken as personal. Because I know from understanding, from seeing clearly, that when pleasant arises, there's the tendency for greed. And when unpleasant arises, there's the tendency for fear or aversion. But that doesn't mean it's skillful to take it personally and act it out, just because there's the tendency for greed and aversion. So the Buddha says, and what is right view? Right view, I tell you, is of two sorts. There is right view with effluence, outflows, or you could say defilements, siding with merit, 
resulting in acquisition, and there is right view without effluence, transcendental, a factor of the path. So we'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead. Right view, not mundane right view, but super mundane right view, or right view without effluence, transcendent, the factor of the path. But what we're thinking about, reflecting on today, is just this basic appreciation of the law or the principle of karma. We're, and remember, view is a skillful means. We're not talking about, uh, I mean, you can take it as a metaphysical truth, but we're working with it as what's skillful. So when I asked you a few minutes ago to, for a couple of weeks, practice with the idea that it's lawful, you know, whatever your experience, whatever you're seeing, just to see, like, how how does that affect your mind? when you're looking at your emotions and you remember, oh, this is lawful, or you're seeing something on the news and you're going, that's lawful, or you're looking at the weather and you're going, well, that's lawful. The traffic's lawful. The fact that we're all here tonight is lawful. The fact that some of you are not here, you know, wherever you are out there, that's lawful too. You know, and those of us who ate sugar today, you know, that was lawful. And those of you who restrained from eating bad foods today, that was lawful. So to just keep seeing it that way. And then part of that seeing that it's lawful is a natural curiosity that when we end up feeling bound up and we remember this is lawful, part of that understanding it's lawful is something led to this feeling of being all bound up, all discombobulated or upset. So I wonder what that was. And you know, our imagination, this is the proper use for imagination. How did I get here? And then we imagine, you know, using memory and imagination, we imagine all what might have been the supporting causes leading to this. Or we feel relatively free and buoyant, natural love, you know, that just flows everywhere naturally not about anything in particular. And then, you know, we notice that. We notice that relative freedom, that relative ease, and wondering like, well, what are, this is lawful, this isn't a mistake. So how did, how did the heart-mind get here? How did it see things? How was it relating? What sort of karmic fruit is it? So karmic fruit means this is the lawful arising from past actions, past or present actions. Is it the view right now that's supporting this lightness? Was it the fruit of something in the past that's supporting this lightness, this freedom? What is it? If you felt some calm in your sit tonight, maybe you feel the residual of calm right now. What are the supporting causes for that? If you feel good about your life, you know, what are the supporting causes? If there's a heavy weight in your heart, what are the supporting causes for that? So part of this mundane right view is the maturing of an insight. It's an insight that there is skillful and unskillful action. And we know that directly from having observed that when the volition is, has this quality, like greed or aversion or delusion, then this is the fruit that will be born out of that intention or that motivation or that volition. 
And in a Buddhist sense, this lawfulness is not personal. It's not subjective. Greed, what the Buddha calls greed, and what we see directly in our own experience as greed, means that it's that which leads to suffering. If it doesn't lead to suffering, it wasn't greed, because that's the definition of greed. Greed is that activity of mind, aversion, fear, is that activity of mind, delusion is that activity of mind that leads to contracted states. So if you don't like those words, that's okay. You can come up with your own words, but if you see that things unfold lawfully and you do at times end in end up in contracted states, then whatever you notice were the fr- the causes that led to this fruit of being contracted. That's what we call the unwholesome roots. So this undermines the idea of sort of a nihilistic view of things, that we're just trapped and doomed or helpless. Because we can always... The mundane right view is all about how to participate. The deeper teachers' teachings that are about, and we'll get there in the next couple of weeks, that are all about more about trust, it's only after the mind has really internalized this mundane level of right view, of responsibility, taking responsibility for cause and effect, participating wholeheartedly in the world, this lawful world of cause and effect. Not being afraid of it, not being uh, uh, like cynical about it. Like, I don't want to have to deal with it. Because, you know, we don't want to deal with it because we don't control everything in this world of cause and effect. But we do participate in it. We're a participant. We're not a victim of cause and effect. We'd like to have more control of cause and effect, but we don't. We have just as much control as we have, which is this level of understanding. And it's the understanding that drives all the other actions, which, of course, is how we participate in this lawful universe, all being driven by view. And it's view that drives motivation. So like in the Eightfold Path mechanism, You have right view, which drives right resolve. That's the second piece, which we're covering in this course. Second half of this course, we'll spend more time on right resolve. So when you have a belief or an understanding, then what comes out of that is these motivations. Like when we feel alone and apart, we feel motivated by greed to take care of this frightened animal. Right? That's what we are inspired to do or to use aversion to get rid of what we're afraid of. When we feel more expansive and attuned and loving, then our motivation is not greed and aversion. It's to care for all things, including ourselves, to be kind, to be generous, to be content. Those are different motivations. And it really matters the particular view that we come out of. So in the small groups tonight, I thought of a few things you might uh, share with your small group members. And remember, we're all participating in this. That's the commitment we made. Um, so you can think about some of these right now as I go through them, see what might make sense for you to share. Of course, anything relevant to you in your practice is okay to bring up in the small groups. 
And as I've always said, for those who are new to these small groups, it's even okay to run out of something to say, but you still get your time. And then, and then the group of three, you practice sitting together in silence. And the person whose turn it is to speak, you just continue in a relaxed way, reflecting on whatever seems relevant, because you might have something more to say in a few seconds. So you don't give up. You don't like, oh, I don't have anything to say. You just hang in there with the reflection. So here are four possibilities. One, last week we talked about path, like how we conceive of the spiritual path in terms of our own life. And you might talk about how it's shifted over the years. Some of you have been practicing for years. How naive our idea, our concept of the path might have been when we first started, you know, decades ago. How right it is now, or is it? You know, maybe it's still this evolution or this unfolding thing and it will change. So that's something you could talk about. It's just how the path is transformed. And in light of that, you could talk about the middle way. Like sometimes, like when we were teenagers, a lot of the path was about acquisition, getting something, like getting out of the house or getting our freedom or getting a car. That was our path. And now, is it about acquisition or not? So this is the middle way, not about acquisition, but also not about rejecting life. And we can think over the years, like I can think of times in my life where my path had the flavor of wanting to reject life or wanting to get something, wanting to be recognized. Another thing you might talk about is the role of calm, having a calm mind and how it supports wisdom, understanding, how it's so much easier to understand the nature of the mind, the activity of the mind, when there's calm. And the kind of insights that arise naturally when there's calm and how hard it is to have any understanding when the mind is agitated. Another thing to bring up is this question of this mundane right view of, um, and in terms of responsibility. So, when we see the world as lawful and that intentions matter, what is our understanding of responsibility? How to hold responsibility in a skillful way? All the ways we related to responsibility, the idea of responsibility in unskillful ways that weren't helpful. How our understanding of what it means to be a a person responsible for their actions, how that has matured, become more wise over the years. That would be a great thing to share in the small groups. And then that last point is just how view, you know, your beliefs, how it shapes your whole world, constructs your whole world, how your actions flow out of your beliefs. We literally construct our world with our views. So just take a few seconds now to think about what might be relevant. We'll just have two minutes of silence. And I'll count how many people there are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.